Take your Bibles, if you will, and let's uh, return to Mark, uh, to Romans chapter 4, and we'll complete that chapter. Um, this is my last uh, episode with you for a while until the, um, the fall, as Jimmy mentioned. And, I, I, you know, you try to, on the last night, you'd really like to have something really wowie-zowie and memorable and, and, uh, uh, and that would encourage you to chomp at the bit to be back in, uh, in September. But I assure you, I have nothing of the sort for you tonight. Um, we will finish up Romans 4. I can tell you this, guys. Uh, I know that perhaps you have almost wearied of hearing so much information and input about the doctrine of justification by faith. I don't think that's my fault. Um, maybe I've stretched it out too long, but it, it is important to the, um, uh, to the Apostle Paul that the doctrine of justification by faith be uh, viewed in every possible facet. And so, um, but he's wrapping, he's wrapping that up in Romans 4 <clears throat> and Romans 5. And Romans, actually, Romans 5 uh, commences a section that I think that you will just really enjoy in the fall. It, it has to do with um, the, the, the whole life of the Christian and fleshing his relationship with Christ out and the role of the Holy Spirit, etc. So at least the, informa- the, the text will be more varied uh, come the fall. Uh, but it certainly is not never a waste of time. It is never a waste of time to uh, understand and try to seek to understand fully such a cardinal principle of the of the scriptures. That being the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Do you remember if you were ever been in the new members class? Um, I show an eight minute blip uh, from a TV show that I was on once uh, about uh, a question that was uh, written in by the viewing audience asking the uh, the uh, the group of us the this collection of religious scholars around the city of Memphis, uh, whether or not you had to be a member of a church to go to heaven. You may remember that uh, if you went to the members class. Do you have to be a member of a church to go to heaven? And so the first man that replied, uh, replied, no, you don't have to be a member of a church. And then the man who answered him uh, disagreed with that man saying, oh, yes, you do have to be a member of a church if you ever expect to go to heaven. Well, uh, I know you don't uh, believe this, but I did my best to keep my comments to an absolute minimum in that television show. Uh, That was at the behest of my wife telling me, please don't embarrass the family. Um, So uh, I, I didn't say much, but when we got to that issue, that is, do you have to be a member of a church to go to heaven? Um, and this man had said in this, and this man said, oh, he's wrong, and, and then I could not contain myself any longer. And uh, part of my reply, as you may remember, if you went through the new members class, I mean, actually, the only thing that many people remember about the new members class is this man, you know, waving his Bible at me uh, as we commence to the fisticuffs. Um, it almost came to that, ladies and gentlemen, had you stay tuned for the next week. But anyway, uh, you know, uh, this man looked at me with ire, I mean with vehemence, uh, vitriol in his voice, and said, you mean to tell me that you believe in that doctrine of justification by faith? And I said, it is the pillar upon which the entire New Testament is built. And that's the point at which he took his Bible and he said... If you can prove that doctrine of justification by faith alone, I'll eat this book. <laughs> Y'all don't remember that? I mean, it, I, I show it in every new members class. It's a good reason to come to the new members class. You can see this guy wave his Bible at me and say, and then I turn it off because what I said next was really unflattering. Um, <laughs> 
But, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that we have spent uh, us winter and spring. Actually, we had that great pause there for about nine weeks, but uh, as we looked at um, uh, emulation of Christ and the power of the Spirit. But, um, yes, ladies and gentlemen, this doctrine of justification by faith alone is the pillar upon which the entire New Testament church is built. There is nothing more vital to your understanding as a believer than this doctrine of justification by faith alone. It must be part and parcel of your entire theological, doctrinal, biblical understanding and makeup. I, I would plead with you to grasp its, its great profundity, and I'm sure that I have confused you over the weeks, but I hope contributed a little to, uh, to the clarity of that doctrine. Now, let's, um, let's move rather hurriedly into verses 19 and 20, and then we'll wrap the whole thing up tonight. Verses 19 and 20. Uh, remember last week we were talking about characteristics of Abraham's faith. Remember I listed five. Uh, maybe you remember I listed five characteristics of Abraham's faith. Um, and then it, that, that conversation really resumes, and I'll read verses 19 and uh, through 22. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able, <coughs> <pardon me. coughs> also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness." Now, guys, um, I said there was characteristics of that faith, and we looked at those, some of those uh, last week, but I think the, uh, the thing that, uh, that most characterizes this faith as displayed via Abraham is something that Paul says um, negatively in 19 and positively in 20. Let me show you what I'm talking about. And not being weak in faith. If you wanted to know something about Abraham's faith, number one, you need to know he was not weak in that faith. And that's, as I said, saying it negatively. And then he turns positively and says basically the same thing in verse 20, but was strengthened in faith. And then he goes on to say in verse 20 that when that happens, when faith is strong, when faith is not weakened, notice what he says, giving glory to God. That is, ladies and gentlemen, strong, non-weak Faith gives glory to God. So if, if strong faith brings glory to God, that would mean, I think, that weak faith um, subtracts from the glory of God. You know, ladies and gentlemen, throughout the history of the church, the men who have, and women who have glorified God the most have always been men and women of great faith, of strong faith. And you know, uh, interestingly enough, uh, parallel to that, um, they've always suffered more too. That is, uh, it is men of great faith who have always been used so mightily. But they're the very same ones who have also suffered the most. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure. Um, but it seems like the enemy of God and our enemy um, hates to see God get glory over anything, particularly his creation. And so when men are strong in faith and are not weakened in faith, uh, not being weak in faith, the, uh, the devil knows that that's something that gives God glory and he strikes um, those who possess it. More frequently than he does those of us who are so weak in faith. In verse 21, we find that Abraham being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. It wasn't his circumstances that controlled him. His circumstances, of course, 
including that old body of his and that old body of his wife. It wasn't his circumstances that dictated to Abraham how it was that he was going to live. What controlled him was the conviction that what God had promised, God was able. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is the nature of faith. That what God has promised, God is able. Um, I, I, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, you can measure how, how strong your faith is too by just measuring it over that one criterion. Um, the consciousness that God is able. Now, having said that much, I, I think um, you need to know that what, I, I don't know of anything that insults God more than our unwillingness or our inability, maybe call it what you like, our unwillingness to believe His promises. Gang, there are always obstacles in the way, in the course, in the way of faith. There's always obstacles. Um, the question is, um, do you believe that God is able to overcome those obstacles? What is it that controls the way that you live as a believer? Obstacles or the grand and glorious ability of the God that you're committed to? What is it that shapes the way you respond to your circumstances. The, the, you know the, the story, that, and you've heard this before, I'm drawing it from memory, but uh, when the 12 spies were sent out into the, uh, the, to, to spy out the land and uh, before Israel went in and 10 of them came back and said, We can't go in there. Don't you guys realize there are sons of Anak over there? The sons of Anak were, of course, the giants and... And so the, the, twin, the ten came back and said, those, those, those sons of Anak are way too big. And of course Joshua and Caleb came back and said, compared to God, those sons of Anak are that. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, what is it that guides you in your, holy, your whole walk of faith? The size of the circumstances or the size of the ability of God? Because one's weak faith, which is insulting, one strong faith, and it gives glory to God. Now, there's something, of course, that is taught there, and that is, obviously, or I hope it's obvious to you, that there are degrees of faith among God's people. There are numerous instances of the Scripture set when Jesus says, O ye of little faith. Uh, do you remember the story when Jesus says, I haven't seen uh, faith like that in all of Israel, because that faith is bigger than anything. I mean, it, or in, um, uh, where is it, later on in the New Testament, in the, one of the latter chapters of Luke, where the disciples come to Jesus and say, request, would you please increase our faith? Because, ladies and gentlemen, their faith was not strong. There are degrees of faith. But to comfort you, at least I hope it will comfort you, uh, weak faith is still faith. Um, it, it may be weak, and yet it is real. Jesus never rejects real uh, weak faith, but he does rebuke it. Oh, ye of little faith is a rebuke, ladies and gentlemen. And you know the circumstances of the, the boat that was about to sink, and he's walking on the water, and he says, Oh, ye of little faith. 
He rebukes it, but never rejects it. Now, so if there are degrees of faith, ladies and gentlemen, what kind of factors go into determining the strength of faith? What is it that can make faith go from one level of strength to greater levels of strength? Well, first of all, uh, of course, is our knowledge of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, um, it is a tragedy that the people of God who come so frequently to the house of God know so little of that God and wonder why their faith is so small. You know, I have, I have said this to you, and I, I, I know you believe me, but I, I become, the older I get, the more painfully aware of it I am. If your sense of walk with Christ is dependent upon what you hear from me on a 30-minute ditty on Sunday morning and maybe a 25-minute ditty on Wednesday night, you're going nowhere. You're going nowhere, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not man enough to give you enough to see faith strength. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of... Faith is that, is that entity that knows that God is faithful. And, and it begins with knowledge of God. That's called, ladies and gentlemen, theology. Which is kind of a bad word among evangelicals these days. Can you believe that the term theology has become a bad word? Don't give me that. No creed but Christ, says the evangelical. I can't be asked to wrestle with those theological... You know, gang, um, um, those of you who have sat through eight hours with me in, in systematic theology, you remember that my great emphasis is in there is never... I don't want to make you agree with me. I'm not interested in making you agree with me. You know, I'm an insecure slob. My wife can tell you that. But um, I'm not so insecure that I have to have everybody quack in the same way and believe like I do. So I go to that systematic theology class with this wonderful sense of freedom, this wonderful sense, I'm not here to make you agree. I'm here to make you think. I'm just here to challenge you about your notions about God. Well, gang, some of you are afraid of that. Some of you are reluctant to, to, be, to hear things that you've never heard before. Well, Welcome to the world of little faith, then. Enjoy it for the rest of your spiritual experience. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if faith is ever going to grow, it's going to come via knowledge of God. Greater and greater and greater knowledge of God. And to think that someone would say, that's available to me, but I will not avail myself of that. I guess it's because we're so comfortable in little faith. And there's nothing more insulting. Um, the first component part of growing faith is knowledge of God, growing knowledge of God, knowledge of God. To know Him is eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, maybe I, I should say these things and run, um, but, you know, I had a man come up to me. Um, wasn't that opening number that was done by that, the musical number by Brad Jones, wasn't that spectacular, spectacular Sunday morning? Well, um, Brad Jones, who plays the, the, the piano, is dating a girl by the name of Nicole. He met, and he met Nicole, a um, little cute little blonde, 
um, you know, long blonde hair was my weakness, so I married a girl with short black. Um, but, <laughs> but it's become blonde in her uh, <clears throat> later years. Um, but her mother and father came to church Sunday. They're from Jackson, Tennessee, and they came to church. Um, and they came up to me to say some very kind things about my sermon, and I was very grateful. But the man, who is a uh, um, neurosurgeon, came up to me and said, <laughs> Boy, nobody's going to go to sleep in this church. <laughs> and I said, How little you know. <laughs> now, guys, I'm not saying that you've got the finest expositor and pulpiteer that ever lived. But I, 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 I want to understand why is it that I'm getting 30 minutes worth of input about the knowledge of God and I sleep? Tell me what that says about one's soul, could you? What could that possibly reveal? Well, because the first component part, ladies and gentlemen, of growing strong, strengthening, non-weak faith is knowledge of God. The study, the disciplined study of the nature and the character and the ways of God. And I say to you, Jesus says to us in John 17, verse 3, to know you is eternal life. That's why we gather every Sunday morning, ladies and gentlemen, because we want to know him better. Don't ever lose sight of that. And please, try to stay up for the 25 minutes that I'm up there. You know? Not for my sake, but for the sake of growing faith. The second component part, of the second thing that contributes to strengthen faith, is an application of what we know. Um, you remember when the, the disciples are in the sinking boat? and um, um, Do you remember the question that Jesus asks? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, really. The question that he poses to him is this. Where is your faith? You got it. But where is it at this present moment? You have faith, oh yes, but um, did you lose it? Did you happen to misplace it in this present crisis? Not... How do you fellas have faith? No, but where is it? You've got it. At this moment, what are you doing with it? Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is how faith grows, applying what, what I know to be true about God. That's what Abraham does. He simply looks at his dead body in the dead womb with his wife, and he says, yeah, but, 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 but God is able. He's able to perform what he promised. It's the application of what I know. What have you been doing with your faith? That's important. Very, very important. <laughs> because there's going to be circumstances tomorrow, you can count on it, where you're going to have to apply what little or what large amounts you happen to know about God. The third thing that I think that it takes to, to, to see a faith grow, you know, it is a process, ladies and gentlemen, and it does take time. I think we start out, you know, all with this fervor, and, and then it kind of... Uh, uh, you know, waxes and wanes. And, but it, it does take 
time for faith to grow and it's never going to grow outside of the context of obedience and knowledge of God. Yes, yes, yes. But the other thing that I wanted to mention is simply experience. And when I say experience, I chose that word wisely because I, what I really wanted to say is it takes pain. But it's not only pain. It's just experiences of walking with God. Some of which, many of which, most of which, and I, there are good times where I, I watch God work wonderful things in my children or I, I see wonderful blessings that He gives. But the, the things that are greatest instructors to, to weak faith is the confidence that grows out of seeing God faithful in the midst of struggle. We all have enough money and enough savvy to live lives that help us avoid pain when they're the things that teach us, give us, grant us, strengthen us in faith, which gives glory to God, whereas the other is an insult to him. Well, let me, uh, we got 11 minutes, and I need to cover real quickly verses 23 through 25. Because in those verses, Paul returns to his primary theme, and that primary theme, of course, being the doctrine of justification by faith. And what he does in these last, let me read them first. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. There again, as I said, Paul closes off this section of his letter by a return to the doctrine of justification by faith. And there reminds us, in these three verses, reminds us that the experience of Abraham is an experience that everyone in Christ can share and repeat. That is, this was not written only for him that it was imputed to him. No, 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 no. It's for us also. Anyone who exercises faith similar to Abraham's is someone who will also have righteousness imputed to him. Abraham is not the only one that's going to get it. It has application to us as well. But Abraham was just the first good illustration. Abraham is used as the first good illustration that righteousness is imputed to all those who believe. But that's not just written for Abraham. That's written for you. That righteousness will be imputed to you too when we believe. That, that's all he says in verse 23. That is, not just for Abraham, but for us too. It'll be imputed for us too. Um, so this whole long treatment of Abraham is supposed to make application for us. He's simply an illustration of what God does to every human being that exercises faith. He imputes, that is, this God imputes righteousness to him. In verse 24, to all who believe, um, where am I? It shall be imputed to us who believe. Anybody that believes and exercises that faith. Now, now notice, this is kind of an interesting little observation in the last half of verse 4. Believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. What, who is this text asking us to put our faith in? It is asking us to put, us, put faith in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. You know, normally we think of uh, we are being called to put, to put faith in Christ. Well, this text is asking us to put faith in the one who raised Christ from the dead. And thus, once again, ladies and gentlemen, you are introduced to the mysterious and historic doctrine of the Trinity. Do you know in John 10, where Jesus is dealing with the disciples, he says, I and the Father are one. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a strange... I, I, you've got to see this. Um, if you can find real quick 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's just... 
I, I really don't know how to explain it to you, really. Um, but this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul says to the Corinthian church, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now, now think about that. John 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then Paul adds in 2 Corinthians that the Lord, that is a reference to Christ, is the Spirit. <laughs> so he's one with the Father and one with the Spirit, which is, of course, the historic, wonderful, glorious doctrine of the Trinity. But um, in this particular instance, we are being asked to believe in God the Father. But um, I hope that doesn't confuse you much because of the doctrine. The only thing that will help unravel that, of course, is the doctrine of the Trinity. If there is no doctrine of the Trinity, then who do you believe in? Which one? Jesus or the one who raised Jesus? Which one are you supposed to put your faith in? But the, the doctrine of the Trinity allows us to say to put your faith in one is to put your faith in the other. To embrace Christ is to embrace the Father. To embrace the Father is to embrace Christ. Only unraveled in that doctrine of the Trinity. Um, uh, to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered um, up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. First of all, let me, let me remind you, it is not just a belief in God in general that you are being asked to perform, but a belief in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Um, that is, the fact of the resurrection is a basic and vital one to Christianity. A lot of times we are, we are called Judeo-Christians, and there is a truth to that in that our, we grow up from the root of Judaism. Yes, indeed. In fact, on some issues, uh, we are also lumped with the whole Muslim world because we believe in this one God, not a pantheon of gods like Hinduism, not 300 million gods like, uh, uh, like India, but we believe in one God, and so does... Um, uh, so do the Muslims, and so do Jews, and so therefore we're all lumped together. But what distinguishes us, ladies and gentlemen, is that we believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, which of course sets us completely apart from Judaism and, and the, uh, the world of Muslim. So, we're not just being asked to believe in a God, and, and folks, there are those who are suggesting to us that you know, we Muslims and we Jews, we're all in the same boat. We're not in the same boat, ladies and gentlemen. We believe in a God who, uh, a, um, we're, we're theistic, indeed, but um, a monotheistic, indeed, but the monotheist that we believe in is the one that raised Jesus from the dead, not just any uh, monotheistic God. And then one quick thing, and we're or three quick things, and we're finished. I want you to notice... Um, just some things about the resurrection or um, in the resurrection what is it that God says what is it that he communicates to us in the resurrection well the first thing that he mentions in verse 24 is who was delivered up because of our offenses the first thing that the, that, that the resurrection gives us I think is an insight to the, to the meaning of Christ's death notice he was delivered up for our offenses. It tells us who, and it tells us why. The who of the death of Christ. Christ was delivered up by this God who raised him from the dead. And he was delivered up for our offenses. Have you ever heard of the word vicarious? Guys, that's a rich theological word. 
and you can impress all your friends at the Bible study um, if you... Vicarious. The vicarious sufferings of Christ. Well, there it is right there. He was delivered up for our offenses. What is Jesus Christ doing on the cross? He is dying by our offenses. Vicariously. My sin is being paid for vicariously in another. He was delivered up for our offenses. I think that the resurrection also communicates that it is the, the, the final piece of evidence in raw data that, uh, that Jesus Christ um, was indeed the Son of God. It's not mentioned in this text, but the, the final piece of proof, the final fact that establishes Jesus as God is the resurrection. And then this last thing that he says, and was raised because of our justification. What, what the resurrection says, ladies and gentlemen, is that God is fully satisfied with the sacrifice that he offered. If Jesus Christ had remained dead, you and I would have never known if his work had been acceptable to the Heavenly Father. But once he is raised, it is a, it is a statement of what he has done has pleased me and satisfied the demands of the law. We were, he was raised. For our justification, the very one who was delivered up because of our transgressions. There, as Martin Luther was fond of saying, is a great deal of theology in personal pronouns. Our is a personal pronoun. For instance, we close with this. this the, the most famous psalm in the entire Bible is the 23rd Psalm where the shepherd uh, king David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, Jesus was delivered for my transgressions. And he was raised up for my justification. That's the importance of personal pronouns. It's the difference between life and death. That's good. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We, um, we are all miserable students of it. Um, I get the privilege of studying it because people pay me to do it. They pay me a handsome salary uh, to do something which is the delight of all of us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who do not have that privilege. Who do not get to wake up in the morning and head straight to their Bibles. And, um, I, I pray, Lord God, that you will help us to create, to find times where we can grow in faith by growing in knowledge of your word. Lord, uh, protect our church. Um, we never want her to be a a safe place to attend. We want her to be a dangerous place. A place where people's lives are being turned upside down and lives are being challenged and men and women are repenting of sin and men and women are, are um, coming to places of higher sanctification and higher consecration. We want this to be a place where we are all constantly being challenged but not by the the uh, perverted personalities of senior pastors or other pastors, but being challenged by the ongoing proclamation 
of your word. It is enough, O oh God. It does not need the addition of human personality. It is enough to change us from the inside out, to confront it, to embrace it, to believe it, to apply it. It is enough. And I pray, O oh God, that more and more your people will discover how rich are its mandates, how beautiful are its precepts, how enriching are its commands. Might, O oh God, we've come to the place, all of us, where we believe at the base of our souls that our greatest friend is obedience to its mandates and our greatest enemy is disobedience to what it has to say. We commit ourselves, Father, by the power and might of the Holy Spirit to obey you as we seek to grow in faith that will give you glory. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.